Amen. What a beautiful truth of John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me. And I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And it is good for our hearts to say, I depend on you. And uh, to repeat it enough times till we really believe it. Uh, It's good for a preacher before he gets up to preach to say that. Because it is dependence upon him. It's not the wisdom of man that will do anything this morning, whether through my preaching or through your listening. It's the power of God unto salvation, and he grants that, and that's a gift from him. So it truly is our hearts that say, I depend on you, and we depend on him. And uh, for him, all praise belongs. Well, we're learning that in Daniel, aren't we? Now in chapter 5 today, you could turn there if you're not there yet. We are seeing that God alone gets the glory, and that's good for us, no matter what walk of life we're in. And we've been seeing so far kings, one in particular, I should limit that, today we'll meet a new king. But it really doesn't matter, because we have seen in Daniel the confession of a king who is able to account that God's kingdom alone endures, and he lifts kings up, and he brings them down. Now, we come to this chapter, and as we get into it, you'll feel like it's deja vu all over again. Props to Yogi Berra. It's fall. It's World Series. So that is true. You can feel like we have seen this before. Palaces and princes, power and pride, you name it, Babylon has it. Rinse and repeat, doing it again. But don't let that familiarity uh, breed contempt in the sense that we think everything is going to turn out today the way it always has. As in, there is a prideful king, and then there is a wise prophet, and there is an interaction in the court, and there is seeking of wisdom from above, and by the end, the king is enlightened, and he turns from his ways, and everybody goes home relieved that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that does happen in the individual uh, life of Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's the fulfillment of James 4.6 in one man's life. Though he was proud and God did oppose him, we see last week, by, or we saw last week, by the end of chapter 4, he's praising and extolling and honoring the King of Heaven, the Most High God, because he saw that all God's works are right and all God's ways are just And what does that make of Nebuchadnezzar? One who walked in pride, but God was able to humble. He he saw that and agreed with that. And so we say amen to the wonderful turn that repentance, true repentance brings when a proud person humbly bows before his maker. But here's the flip side. You don't even turn the page. You just move through the white space to chapter 5. And we will see that God opposes the proud and God gives grace to the humble, but it's not always the same person. Sometimes the proud stay proud. And so God opposes them all the way to the end. And by God's grace, there are those who are humble who he gives grace to. And that's where this morning we land, appreciating the The whole character of God is revealed in the whole counsel of God. Yes, there are these seemingly um, different qualities of God's character. 
And sometimes you have to traverse spans of the scripture where we're seeing God's love and his mercy on display in a passage. And then you have to go somewhere else to find his, his might. You might see his, his uh, patience. And you have to go a long time to see though that patience eventually is gone. And now you just see a display of his power in bringing someone down. Or you see his pardoning work. And then somewhere else in the scripture you come across his punishing work. And those are always in harmony, friend. We may not understand how in our lives we can have those dual qualities. Over here, love and mercy and grace, that, that neat little package, we like to keep those attractive qualities in. And then over here there's this part of us that, wait, what about justice and what about judgment and and what about holiness and what about wrath but in our wonderful most high God whose ways are higher than our ways they harmonize Psalm 34 15 reads the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry and we we see the mercy of God in that verse and then the next verse says the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth And then the next verse goes back and says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Which God is it? It's one God. And he can be both of those simultaneously. He can be the God that hears our cries. And his eyes are towards the righteous. And he draws near and delivers. And And he also can be the God who His face is against the evildoers, not just to cut them off, as in it's over for them. But it says in Psalm 34, 16, to cut off the very memory of them. That's the sovereign God we see in Daniel. And we see those qualities on display again here in Daniel chapter 5. So I'm going to read the first four verses and bring us into the story and then we'll watch the plot unfold. Daniel 5, 1-4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is the living word of God. May he illumine and instruct us this day. Maybe at times you have heard of um, the description of how between generations in in a family business that there can be a diminishing and even a squandering between the first to the second and then to the third generation of the wealth or success accrued. 
The Scottish have a phrase for it. The father buys, the son builds, and the grandson begs. Or in the U.S., it's been said, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. What is the axiom that you may be able to pass on wealth, but you can't always pass on the success, the work ethic, the ability to sustain that? And it can be gone in three generations. Because whatever it was that was in the father that maybe got passed on to the son to build up and improve by the grandson is presumed upon. Now you may or may not agree with that. But it seems to be that by the time we meet Belshazzar here in verse 1, some of that has occurred. We're in 539 B.C. Daniel 1, we met Nebuchadnezzar in 604. So some 60 years has passed by, and this is probably a grandson, though not by lineage, but by Belshazzar, his father marrying in, and then the son of his mother, who's probably the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. If you want more of that, you can find some History Channel stuff this week to find the trail between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in the kingdoms that were passed on, both corroborated with 2 Kings 25, but also extra-biblical history uh, from Herodotus and Xenophon, the Greek historians that came later and recorded it. All that is to say, when you read in verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, it's the way the Bible talks about grandsons, or even a great-grandson, perhaps. It's just about progeny. It's about who was the the main character. In the same way that uh, even in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees would say, Abraham is our father. Well, clearly not. That's just the language of the time. So when, when Daniel was writing that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar's been dead since 562. Belshazzar now is kind of king, but kind of not. Because his dad, Nabonidus, is, is off starting a new kingdom in Saudi Arabia. Well, present-day Saudi Arabia. And he's kind of um, king by proxy hanging around in Babylon for the last 10 years. And what maybe characterized Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 1 to 4, he was going after power. He was going after uh, prestige. He was building wealth. He was, he was expanding territory. So you could say, hey, maybe he was motivated, Nebuchadnezzar, by expansionism and capitalism and more, more, more. We're not going to see that in Belshazzar. We're going to see hedonism. It wasn't the pursuit of power that would be driving the pride of Belshazzar. It's the pursuit of pleasure. And perhaps why he is blissfully aware of the fact that the kingdom that's going to replace Babylon, the Medes and Persians, the the silver chest and arms that we saw in a vision back in chapter 2 given to Nebuchadnezzar, has already moved in and surrounded the city. And he's throwing a party. 
So let's pick up the action. He made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. This is the sacrilege of success. He's been there for 10 years uh, with his dad away. The kids will play. Y'all know that works. Don't act like when parents were away, there wasn't, oh, opportune time. Throw a party. Oh, dad's been away now for 10 years. So Belshazzar is celebrating a great feast. There, we could only um, guess what the reason for that would be when we do know that that, that very day, Medo-Persia is surrounding Babylon. Maybe he was so confident in himself, sort of what we heard in the testimony, trusting in oneself, thinking they were in, uh, in control. Maybe that was what characterized Belshazzar. He never had to work for it. That, that, that circumference of 17 miles of, of 25 foot thick wall around Babylon that had never uh, been overcome. Maybe that's where his trust was. Nobody can get through these walls and party all night. They can wear themselves out trying to get through this wall. Maybe that was what it was. But whatever it was, maybe he was just trying to show the people that, hey, even though there's another kingdom invading, we're, follow my lead. Relax. We'll get to that the next day. Who knows what it was? All we know is he had a great feast with thousands of his leaders and commanders there, and they were drinking wine, and he was... Up front, it says he drank wine in front of them. So picture a room, excavators, archaeologists, what they think they've uncovered from uh, Babylon's uh, kingdom is that this room would have been bigger than our Spurgeon Center on the other side of the campus. So hundreds are in there, a thousand are in there, but he's got like a spot like me where everybody's facing him because this is about him. And he's leading them in the, um, the, the debauchery. He's um, the king of the palace of profanity. And he tastes the wine, and it's not enough that they're getting drunk. He wants to get idolatrous. And he says, bring in the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, my father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem and be brought. And, and now we get that detail back. We saw that detail. You can look back in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. Why was it there? Because I said that political power and religious power went hand in hand. We defeat your people, we've got stronger gods. And we'll steal the vessels of the house of God in Jerusalem and bring them over to Babylon. And they've been sitting there for 60 years. But at least Nebuchadnezzar, at the time, if he was in power for his 30-year reign or so, he at least was respectful of those vessels that were, that were consecrated and set apart for the priests of Israel. It never mentions him doing anything with them. They were locked up, and there were a lot of them. Archaeologists believe that the amount of, of vessels in the treasury that were brought from Solomon's temple into Babylon, that amount of gold, pure gold and silver, would be in the billions, if not perhaps a trillion dollars worth of gold and silver. So um, Indiana Jones, acolytes, nobody's really ever found all this stuff. Go for it. Some college student's going to change their major tomorrow. But, but that's what happened. This, he brings out these vessels of gold and silver and says, let's drink from them the end of verse 2. He's not just a drunk slob at this point. He's a profane one. 
And so they bring in the gold vessels that have been taken out of the temple. Daniel is repeating this to highlight uh, the blasphemy of the occasion. The house of the God in Jerusalem and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And then the high point of this um, sacrilegious occasion, verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What do we take away from this? The way he is so irreverent and impious and spoiled and selfish shows us that he was using these vessels that were to be separate and consecrated and set apart for the worship of the one true God. He was using them as if to say, you know what, Yahweh, most high God, you exist to serve my purposes. I don't exist to serve yours. And friend, be warned, that's the heart of all idolatry. When you start seeing the world flipped around, saying, God, you exist to serve my purposes. I don't exist to serve yours. And religious people can do it in very religious ways. We're not talking about the the profanity of some um, pagan cult practice here. We're saying when, when I get to determine my fate, I've, I've got the right to tell God what to do. And if he doesn't respond to my requests, something's wrong on his side of the equation, not mine. Don't become a practical idolater. We exist for him. That's the message so far in Daniel. The God raises up a king and he doesn't give him a pass. God, as we saw back at the beginning of Daniel 1, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. It's always God whom we exist for his service, him not for ours. But Belshazzar has been ignorant of this and now is making a mockery of it. So that's the opening section, the sacrilege of success. Now let's look at the next section, the shock of sobriety. No No bucket of cold water is needed to wake him up. More effective is the hand of God. Verse 5. Immediately, Daniel shifts the focus of the scene to not Belshazzar's face. First, he turns the camera to the back of the room. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. As in the lampstands would be around the king for prominence so everybody could see all his features. So it's saying, here I am, pretending to be Belshazzar, leading the party, and you're following my lead, and the wine is flowing, and the gold is out, and then suddenly you see my color change. And I am in shock, and the people are going, what's going on? It's because I am fixated on something on the back wall that you can't see. And now you picture all... The heads turn. Just like in here. There's a sound of a baby. There's somebody walking out of here. Clank, the door goes. I watch all you people. Whoop. That's partially the reason I never look. Because where I look, you're going to look. If it's something worth distracting. And that's this situation. Daniel first highlights the fingers of a human hand appearing. Really, the NAS is better. They emerge. Can you picture it? A hand emerging out of that wall and then writing on it. You know who can really shut down a party at... The peak of it, God. 
He'll shut it down. And to the point, the king, the one leading the parade of profanity, his color drops out of him. He's Casper. His thoughts alarm him, just like they alarmed his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, twice. Chapter 2 and chapter 4. Just like they alarmed Daniel in chapter 4. Meaning fear, trembling. But unlike Belshazzar, the other guys, their limbs didn't give way. He, if his limbs are giving way, he's dropping the golden chalice to the ground. Wine spilled. Knees knocking together. He has no control over his body. And God did not have to shock him with columns crumbling or a mighty rushing wind coming in or lightning striking. You know how God sobered him up? His pinky. That's all God needs to work with. And so you have the king alarmed, not knowing what to do. Well, he followed suit. This is why we, we can expect the same pattern of plot because he does what his father did. He calls, verse 7, for the enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers, all the wise men that we have seen so far in Daniel aren't actually that wise. They've never been able to solve it. But he calls for them loudly, as in literally the rendering as he shouted with all his strength. Can you picture it? Him screaming, face white, fearful. He does not know what's going on. He's lost control and his party's ruined. Food's going cold. Guests might be starting to get anxious. So he calls them in and tells them, whoever reads this writing and shows me it's the interpretation will be rewarded, clothed with purple, chain of gold. And note, the third ruler in the kingdom. Why does he do that? Because he's the second ruler, because his father, Nabonidus, who's been out of the picture for 10 years somewhere else, is first in command. And Daniel is nowhere to be mentioned. We all know, up until the point of Nebuchadnezzar, his father, that Daniel was the number two guy. So Daniel's not even the number two guy. He's not even the number three guy at this point. He's nobody. I mean, 539, how old is Daniel at this point? 75 years old? If he, got, if he came as a teenager in 604, pushing 80, and forgotten. But the king leans on his wise men. They come in, verse 8. They could not, interesting, read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation well, that writing that we get to see later on in verse 25 and 26 is Aramaic. Why couldn't they read it? Well, the text doesn't tell us. All we know is God's sovereign over who can read and who can't read this. Imagine if you just looked at these words on the page of your book and you couldn't, you know, sorry, Bible. And you suddenly just couldn't make sense of any of it. I mean, these are the, they knew the language, the writing on the wall, but they couldn't even read it, let alone interpret it, which, verse 9, is probably why Belshazzar's greatly alarmed. Now it's not just this supernatural uh, occurrence, this hand writing on the wall. His wise men can't even read said words on the wall. It says his lords were perplexed. It's reminiscent of what we saw back in Daniel chapter 4 in the sense of uh, God is so sovereign over all the moments of this, like in Nebuchadnezzar when he is now for seven years perhaps or seven seasons, he is grazing like a cow, but nobody overthrows him. Why? Because the word of God wasn't going to let it happen. 
God is moving the plot forward with the pieces he wants to at this point. Look at the next move. Verse 10, the queen comes in. Seemingly insignificant, minor character in the plot. We don't even get her name. We know it's not his wife because his wives have already been mentioned in verse 2. And if you know anything about ancient Near East culture in the king's court, um, even back in Esther, she, the, the queen, the wife of the king, couldn't even just parade into his presence without his permission. But you know who can? Mama. Or perhaps, some say it could have even been grandma. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's widow. Now, argument from silence, but putting a little common sense together, if this was grandma, she is not walking in saying, oh, king, live forever. She's walking in with her purse swinging, saying, bless your heart, whack. <laughs> so I rule out that it was grandma. And that, but that's the new southern version of the text. Um, but we don't know. It, it could have been his mom, Nabonidus' wife who stayed behind in Babylon. It could have been the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. Either way, the queen comes in. Because why? The words of the king and his lords came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declares, O king, live forever. She shows him that respect. And then she reprimands him. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Why? What's she going to tell him? She goes, there is a man in your kingdom. Have you forgotten something? What are all these other guys doing here? Did you forget your history? There's a man in the kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, did you forget this? Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, now she's really giving it to him. Like, you've been given this by your mom. Tell him, your dad, your dad, he repeats it. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king. Do you know what he did when he had problems? He used this guy, and he even made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Why? And she repeats herself again, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, riddles, and problems were found in this, wait for it, Daniel, Hebrew name. Maybe this queen had become a believer as well along with Nebuchadnezzar. And she sat back perhaps and watched her son or grandson make a mockery of the most high God that Nebuchadnezzar had bowed to. You forget who that guy is? The king named him Belteshazzar. So now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. There's a, a slight a lesson, maybe two in this to understand this morning. One is don't underestimate the minor characters in the major plot. Queen doesn't even get a name. But in the providence of God and his sovereign working in the power in this situation, he brings the queen in to break the news, to give a wise word, and that starts to turn the tide of the story, doesn't it? So dis, don't in your life discount what might seem like a meaningless interaction from a minor character trying to help you to wise up. It doesn't always have to be the star of the show showing up first to get you back on the wise track, does it? Sometimes it's just the queen. What else do we see here? Something about Daniel that the queen highlights, which is his character 
or as we say, his reputation preceded him, didn't it? Belshazzar and all these other wise men and lords might have forgotten who he was, but the queen didn't. His good deeds went before him. His legacy was known in Babylon, and it was not a legacy of power per se. It was a legacy of understanding and wisdom and excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding. This is over the top. Except that we've known from the beginning of Daniel that God gave it to him. So why should we not expect to see that? But that was the reputation that though decades later, Belshazzar is ignorant of, the queen remembered. So what does Belshazzar do in his sobered up state? Verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answers and says to Daniel, you are that Daniel. What he says next probably highlights the fact that he didn't have a very high view of Daniel or wanted to admit any weakness in this moment. You're, you're that Daniel. Um, oh, first thing on my, yeah, you're one of those exiles. Says the punk king to the man three times his age who is his grandfather's right-hand man. Oh, one of the exiles. Huh. Who my king, or my, the king my father brought from Judah. He doesn't understand his own place, does he? We've seen from the beginning, it was God who delivered Daniel and his friends into the hand of the king. It was God who had sovereignly selected them to rise to power. It was God who had Daniel there every step of the way, right next to the king to put him back on the right path to accomplish God's purposes. But when you are so puffed up in pride, it's really hard to know when God is sending someone your way to humble you. My king, or my father, the king brought you. Well, here's the thing. I've heard of you <laughs> that the spirit of God is in you. He doesn't say he believes in him. I'm really glad you could make it. it it's, it's, it's choking these words out, perhaps. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, these wise men enchanters have been brought in before me to read it and interpret it, but they couldn't do it but I've heard you can do it. And now just this goes to show how little faith he has in him. Whereas we saw with Nebuchadnezzar when he brought Daniel in in chapter four, he said, I know you can do it. Whereas Belshazzar, now if you can read the writing and make known the interpretation, I've got something for you. You can be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and you can be third ruler in the kingdom. So here it is, the court is set in front of these thousands of lords and in front of these uh, dozens, if not hundreds of wise men and in front of the queen and in front of Belshazzar, here is Daniel getting the call from the bullpen for the final time. Now, if I was writing this plot and I got October baseball on the mind, it would be he's coming out of the bullpen like that Mets relief pitcher with the, dun, 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 the trumpet playing and the crowd cheering because Daniel deserves that. But that's not the way Daniel's coming out. It's more like um, Casey at bat. He's, he's the veteran. And 
Perhaps as he's making his way out, the murmurs are going around like, oh, is this guy going to actually come up with something? You know, would he be a Casey at bat? Would he knock it out of the park or would he not have what it takes? Let's see what happens in his response, the sting of sovereignty. We have seen God's sovereign hand in every detail, his literal sovereign hand writing on the wall. We have seen his hand in having the queen come out and give a word of wisdom to her grandson and then the sovereign hand of of the king in maybe against his own pride being willing to give Daniel a shot. But now that Daniel has his chance, what's he going to say? Sovereignty can sting. Daniel answers and says before the king, (laughs) let your gifts be for yourself. Just enjoy that. Daniel has shown us all along his discernment, his wisdom, always the right thing to say at the right time. And there's some punch in this. It's not disrespectful. It's just the honest to God truth. Daniel is saying to the king right out of the bat, Right out of the gate, I can't be bought. Which shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because going back to chapter 1 of Daniel, when he arrived there at 18, he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He could not be bought with pleasure. And in chapter 3, when, or sorry, in chapter 2, when, when his life was on the line, he could not be bought with the threat of death. So why at 80 years old is he going to be bought with the idea of prosperity? Reminds me in um, Acts 8 when Simon the magician sees the power of the apostles Peter and John on display and he says, can I buy some of that? And what does Peter tell him? Let your silver perish with you. God's word and God's works are priceless. And Daniel knows this, and he's in this one line trying to give a lesson to Belshazzar. You might think you own everything, but you've got nothing. Give your rewards to someone else. Why why does Daniel speak with such moxie right here, with such courage? Because the Daniel at 80 was the Daniel at 18, and every year in between. As now, so then is the principle we learn here. And who you want to be tomorrow is who you will be today in this moment. I mean, we could all want to be Daniel when, when, I mean, the lights are on in this moment. And this is the big chance. But if we haven't seen in the story of Daniel the convictions he's kept from the time of his youth till now, he would not just be turning it on right now. If this wasn't who he was, maybe he would have said, oh, yes, finally I got my chance. You know, I've been sitting in, in, you know, just waiting for this opportunity. Thank you so much, Belshazzar, for remembering me. A promotion is long overdue. There's none of that. He just says, king, I want none of that. I can't be bought. Can that be said of you? Your convictions run that deep. What you have to start doing is digging the trenches deeper. And who you want to be next week, next month, next year, you should be today, right now, in this room. 
Asking God, show me, teach me, help me. This is who I want to be. So he says, no thanks, I'll pass. But he's also not um, indifferent, arrogant, condescending. He, He just says, I don't want any of that. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. This is what you brought me in for. This is what I'm in this palace for. This is what I'll do for you. Let's go. But first, (laughs) I mean, this is verse 17. We don't get to the interpretation and the reading till verse 24. If Daniel has this one shot with the king right now, he needs to teach him a lesson. He wants him to learn something if it's not already too late. Remember the counsel that Daniel gave Nebuchadnezzar, even though he had made known the interpretation of what's going to happen to him, he still said, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. You know what? He's not even trying to reason here with Belshazzar. He's just saying, you missed a pretty big lesson in your family history class. Let me reteach it one last time. And so in verses uh, 18 to 21, he gives Belshazzar a history lesson in the sovereignty of God. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Just slightly correcting what Belshazzar had said back in 13, whom the king my father brought from Judah. No, actually, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father the kingship and the greatness and the glory and the majesty. And moving on to verse 19. And because all the greatness he gave him, God's sovereignty, absolutely in control of every moment of Babylon's rise. Because all that was given to your grandfather. Then, verse 19, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. He did what any king is going to do, whom he would. Now, this is talking about Nebuchadnezzar, not about God. Whom Nebuchadnezzar would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Because king is going to do what king's going to do. It's not always wrong to kill And to keep alive. Basically he's just saying he was administering justice. He was doing what he was asked to. Whom he would he raised up. And whom he would he humbled. That's the reality of being the king. Do you notice something in this singular verse? Verse 19. You get a picture of God's absolute sovereignty. With man's responsibility. Illustrated right in front of your very eyes. I know the big question. A lot of us ask as we learn more about the word of God. How can God be sovereign. And hold man responsible. Because the Bible tells us. That's the answer. You can try to get your mind around it. Or you can read verse 19 and says. It is that way. I don't know exactly how it works. But that's the way God wrote it. He was the one who gave the greatness and the glory and the majesty to Neb. And then Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for all of his actions. And one action in particular Neb was responsible for that God held him accountable to. And that was the action of his pride. Verse 20. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened. So that he dealt proudly. No longer was he the king just dealing and doing what the king was called to do. Pride crept in. And what did we talk about? When you put yourself as God and forget there is only one God. When that puffing up, when that head gets big and think you're the explanation for all the good in your life. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened. 
So he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of men. And his mind was made like that of beasts. Notice it's God doing all these things to Nebuchadnezzar. He was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Why all of this? Why was God going to these lengths with Nebuchadnezzar? Until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. There's your history lesson that Belshazzar, clearly you flunked. And we need that lesson here today. We need reminded again and again and again that the most high God rules what? You fill in the blank. Put your address in there. Put your job title in there. Put the wedding date that you have set in there. Whatever future you think you have and that you're designing and whatever past you think you are responsible for all the success you have, no, put this one in there. The most high God rules the kingdom of your name. Insert here. That's it. And if you find yourself under the hand of God, the humbling hand of God that First Peter says we are to humble ourselves under, then maybe it's because God is trying to get through to you. You need to know who's king. That's what we learned from this. But see, this lesson wasn't directly given to us. It was given to Belshazzar. And we know this because starting in verse 22, it, the sermon, this is a sermon Daniel is preaching, a short one. I could learn from him. But he starts with the, ap, the, the explanation. That's what he just did in 18 to 21. All preachers do. Let me explain something to you. And now in verse 22 and 23, let me apply it to you. And why we know that is because in these two verses, 14 times, you or your is told to Belshazzar. Do you think Daniel, by way of uh, God's message for him, was trying to get something across? There was going to be no squirming out from underneath the application of this sermon. Why did he tell him all this? Verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar. Have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the God of heaven. This is on you. The party's over. This is God reckoning with you. And you can't point the finger around at anybody else. God had to put his finger on the wall to get your attention. What's the first indictment of Belshazzar? It's the indictment in verse 22 of sinning against knowledge of God. Notice what he says. You have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. He sinned against knowledge. That was the first charge. You are not ignorant you are in rebellion. You know this story. You've heard this story. You know how it turned out for your father Nebuchadnezzar. 
You knew all this, but what you didn't do is learn from it. So first indictment, you sinned against knowledge. Second indictment, but you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house. You brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. Second indictment, you sinned against the holiness of God. Not just the knowledge of God, you sinned against his holiness. You have profaned him. You are a blasphemer. And here's what's so sad about it, Belshazzar. You did this all against the God in whose hand is your breath. End of story. We just sang it, didn't we? It's your breath. In our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. And any unbelieving person like Belshazzar, male or female, prince or pauper, every moment moving on in your existence, apart from seeing who God is and what he's done for you and offers you in Christ, it is him giving you breath in your lungs and you pouring out praise to your personal God, you. And that's Belshazzar's life summarized. This God in whom is your breath, in whose are all your ways you have not honored. He had all the right information but no heart transformation. Think about that. Especially in societal ills we hear of, when we see on display, and as long as I can remember, you know, what's it always been? What's the solution society comes up with? We've just got to educate everyone. I'm not talking like math. Relax. We need math. We need reading, writing, arithmetic, right? No, it, it's, it's like the one preacher was saying about our society is convinced the solution of all ills is education. In the U.S., the knee-jerk reaction to any social ill is we must educate the people, which translates to let's throw money at it and have the government oversee it. And it's built on the assumption that greater education will lead to societal transformation. Look around today. It's working, isn't it? Hasn't it just produced a wonderful generation of God-fearing people who treat each other what? Terribly, tragically. And from the time I was in grade school, which wasn't too long ago, a couple decades, it's always been if we can just get the message across, you know, just say no to drugs. If we could just educate them, this is your brain on drugs, our society will be transformed. And that's proven what? Not to be true, because it doesn't transform the heart. Why is the gospel our mission as a church? Because if you change the heart, if the heart is transformed, then a society is transformed. Because then you have a God-fearing people. But wouldn't you have a God-rejecting people? All the education, everything Belshazzar knew didn't lead to change. Daniel was making the opposite point with his history lesson. 
You knew everything you needed to know, and rather than help you, it hardened you. And now you're responsible, and here's a reckoning for what you do know. Verse 24, here's the reckoning. Then from God's presence, the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed. This, this is God's word, and it's final. There is no counsel that Daniel is offering to this king. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. What's the imagery here? Those are all words for the, the Mina and the shekel and the half shekel. These are monetary units that were used as, also as weights to describe how when something was measured out, when something was on the scales, when the king wanted to see what something's worth, let's put some money on it and see the value of it. And Belshazzar would be very familiar with that. But what he wasn't familiar with and now is staring him in the face is that he's on the scale. His time has come. His number's up. And what's the interpretation of it? You have been weighed and found wanting. Now here's the reality for the rest of us. We'll face the same judgment. And you have the scales of God's justice. And here's his law that represents his perfect, holy, righteous character. And then here's your life on the other side. And the best of men or the best of women can put good deed after good deed, after good work, after morality, self, whatever it might be, very good attempts. You can keep putting it on this side of the scale and you can work your whole life to say, I think I'm pretty close. There's going to be a, it may be off. If I just get a few more good things in, I'm good. Now, here's the truth of it. There's no one righteous, no, not one, apart from Christ. So you could put all the good works you want on it, and when you remove your hands standing before God one day, that side that represents his holy, perfect character, boom, is going to hit the ground with all your good works on it. Well, let me take it a step further. Before you even had a chance to put every one of your good works on it, guess what? For every one of your sins... As in your direct violations of God's word. He's going to take that good work off. Imagine that. And then all your good stuff is obliterated. Because there was an accounting for all your sins you actively committed. This weight of God's word is now through the floor. And you stand before his scales of justice. And you, it's not even to say that you would be found lacking. There would be nothing Nothing, nothing to your account. That's how hopeless and helpless we are apart from one. One truth. Christ's righteousness given to our account. So then you have the scale. And this is through the floor. And Christ's righteousness is put on it. And boom, it goes the other way. Because he perfectly fulfilled the law of God on the sinner's behalf. 
And so when your life is on the scales of God's justice, not one thing can you bring and cling to and say, I deserve, you won't have that argument. The only argument the gospel gives you is the righteous life of Christ. And to take away the sin penalty, his death on your behalf. That's the good news of the gospel to you, the sinner today. That's the good news of it. You may think, man, what a downer sermon. That, 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 that we're that bad. Yes, we are. And God is that good. And Christ is that perfect. And he offers you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you receive it today? Because that's how it's going to go down. And apart from Christ and only pointing to him in his righteous life, we will be found wanting. But praise God that he sent his son to die for our sins that whoever believes in him will not perish in that great day of justice, but will have eternal life. And you can put your life in God's hands today by trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the good news for you. You still have time. But there's a lesson we learned from this. Belshazzar wasn't given that time. His time was up. The swiftness of God's sentencing is nothing that we can presume upon. As in, I'll get one more shot. In the wisdom and wonder of God's plan for Nebuchadnezzar's life, he, he got that. Belshazzar had chance after chance after chance, willful ignorance and rebellion against God's law and the reality of God in his life. And so finally tonight, he says, it's over for you, Belshazzar. The sentencing has arrived. Verse 30, that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And it was done. It was, it was, it was over for him. Just as quickly as he came on the scene in verse 1 of chapter 5, he is escorted off the scene of history and yes, into the vaults of of. The history channel. But where is he today? He's perishing. Eternally. Apart from God. Because he was weighed in the balances and found wanting. No repentance. No hope. No future. And God was just. Because... Belshazzar did not believe in the justifier. He did not think he needed God's grace. What do we learn from that? Back to James 4, 6. Sometimes God opposing the proud, that person stays in their pride. And God will oppose them all the way into eternity forever. How do we explain how somebody gets there? On our side of it, what warning can we take from it? Perhaps an applicable Proverb to the life of Belshazzar would be this. Proverbs 29.1. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. We may not ever presume upon God's timing 
And whether you know that that time you're stiffening your neck in pride against him again will be your last. I was enjoying a wonderful afternoon this past week up in beautiful Boone, Blowing Rock on the Blue Ridge Parkway, cruising along, enjoying God's glory and creation. And then coming down the mountain around mid-afternoon, right at the top of the mountain, suddenly I am in fog. Where I was on the parkway, beautiful. Somehow the fog sets in in the middle of the day. And I'm talking, I could not see beyond the end of my car. Now how foolish would it be for me to presume upon the, I don't know, dozens of times I've gone up to that mountain and come back down. I know the turns. I'm just going to keep cruising at the same speed I always go. When I could only see five feet in front of my car. Not knowing the car that could be in front of me there or coming into my lane. What do you do? You pay attention. You slow down. You, you don't presume upon things will go on just as they always have. I'll, I'll make it to the bottom of the mountain. I'll be great. No, I'm driving down there thinking about this going. This could be the end. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I could have, I guess, stopped and waited it out. But I just slowed down and I pray that this message today for some of you slows you down. To know that that day of God's justice is coming in your life and you have no, no idea when. That's just a fact. But the good news for you today is you're here hearing this. And he's giving you that opportunity to give your life to Christ today and trust in him. That when you are weighed in those scales, it's only Christ's righteousness that you trust in and not your own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for its clarity in a hard case. Lord, we do not rejoice as you do not rejoice in the death of the wicked. There, there is no celebration at the end of this story in and of itself. There is a recognition that you are sovereign over every life from beginning to end, and that's sobering. But what we can celebrate is there is good news in Jesus this morning. And he calls, and he offers forgiveness of sin to those who would say, be merciful to me, God the sinner. We know only your spirit can do that work to give new life And we trust it to you. And we thank you that you are just and the justifier. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.